Well, good morning. It's Christmas time. I I love Christmas time. It's a, always been a wonderful time of celebration at our house, time to be with family, time to spend time together, time to just rejoice in the good gifts that God has given us. I love Christmas time, and I trust that many of you feel the same way. I do, however, want to acknowledge this morning that for some, Christmas can be a time of sadness. This may be the first Christmas without a loved one, or this Christmas because of physical or emotional or financial trials, your heart may be so heavy that it is difficult to celebrate Christmas. But this morning, even in that, I want to remind us through this passage that even with a heavy heart, as Christians, we can celebrate Christmas because what we celebrate celebrate transcends human suffering. It has worked out well, thankfully. We finished up Joshua a couple weeks ago, and so now we have two weeks here at Christmas to spend just looking at Christmas, looking at the Incarnation, looking at God coming in human form. This morning, we're going to be looking at the Incarnation through the lens of Philippians. Next week, Josh is going to lead us in looking at the Incarnation through a different lens. But this morning, we'll be in Philippians 2. So the Wright family moved around a lot uh, as the children were growing up, but eventually the Wright family settled in Dayton, Ohio. Um, The Wright family being that of the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur. Uh, Their father was a minister, and so they were very well known in their hometown of Dayton, Ohio. Everyone knew who the Wright family was. They all knew the Wright brothers, kind of like Lauren in Oxford. Everybody knows who Lauren is. Just this week, someone was introducing me to someone else, and we made one or two connections, Then almost immediately they were like, oh, you're Lauren's brother. Okay, yeah, that's me. I'm, just, I'm Lauren's brother. But the Wright brothers were well known. The Orville and Wilbur, as you know, are working on an airplane, and they were working on it in their hometown of Dayton, Ohio, but eventually, after months of years of planning and scheming and designing and getting ready to build, they moved to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, because that's where they felt like the optimal place with wind and everything would be to make the first airplane flight. And so, again, after months and months of planning and building, um, waiting for the perfect day, the perfect conditions, eventually on December 17th, the Wright brothers made the first airplane flight in human history. Obviously, it was a, a huge deal. It was a huge accomplishment. I mean, the airplane would revolutionize travel. It would change the world. So they went immediately and sent a telegram to their family back in Dayton, Ohio. And they said, you know, they sent a telegram saying, we, we flew a plane. We did it. Um, they listed some of the wind speed and how far they flew, that kind of thing. Um, but it was December 17th. And so they told all about the airplane flight. At the end, they said, you know, we'll be home for Christmas. That telegraph was transmitted, and the Wright brothers' younger sister and the family got the text message. They were obviously ecstatic about the, the first human flight, and their younger sister took that telegram to the local news uh, paper writer and showed him and told him about it, and he began working on a story. So the next morning, uh, the Wright family eagerly 
got the paper and they're expecting to open up a front page headline that says, you know, Wright Brothers, first in flight or something to that effect. But there was nothing on the first page or the second page. They flipped through the paper and at the very end of the paper there was a short little blurb with the headline, the Wright Brothers will be home for Christmas. They completely missed the point. This, this reporter missed what would have obviously been the biggest story of his career by far, something that would literally revolutionize the world. But Christmas is about something that's so much bigger than the first airplane flight. But it, it suffers from the same issue. The world misses the point of Christmas. They see Christmas as a time to give gifts and to be off work and to spend time with family and to have parties and to have a good time. Those are all good things. I'm looking forward to doing all those things. But it's not the point. For Christians, Christmas should primarily be a celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. To celebrate God coming in human form. And hopefully, I think they do, most Christians understand this. But many Christians miss the primary reason for the Incarnation. They make the Incarnation of Jesus Christ all about themselves, with no acknowledgement to the overarching goal of God in the Incarnation. They see Christmas as God sending Jesus to earth exclusively so that they would be saved. And now, to be sure, John 3.16 is true. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Next week's sermon is going to focus more on God's love for us in sending Christ. But if we only see God's love for us in the Incarnation, we are missing the ultimate goal of God in the Incarnation. Now with that as an introduction, we're going to look this morning for a few minutes at the reality of the Incarnation, the reason for the Incarnation, and our response to the Incarnation. So we're going to be in Philippians 2, 5-11. through Read it with me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. For though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reality of the Incarnation. I think most of us here this morning are familiar with the Christmas story from the eyes of man from the eyes of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men. We know the narrative from Luke, right? At our house, we read what we recited Luke 2 every Christmas Eve. In those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, right? These verses tell the narrative of Jesus coming to earth and the human beings that were a part of his birth. But these verses here in Philippians that we're going to look at today, these tell the Christmas story through the eyes of God. This is a view of Christmas, not from the vantage point of Bethlehem, but from the vantage point of heaven. We're going to spend several minutes 
looking at these verses to try to better understand the realities of the Incarnation. But I want to make it clear from the outset that nothing we can say or grasp in our minds will come close to an exhaustive understanding of how the eternal God took on human flesh and walked among us. It is unbelievably beyond our understanding. How God became of man and the weight of that significance is just incomprehensible. But God has given us a picture here in Philippians of who Jesus is and what he did. And there's some phrases in these verses that are sound ambiguous in English and they have caused some people to stumble over this passage. So we're going to look closely at a few of these phrases. So starting back in 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, could literally be read, he being in the form of God. Listen to John MacArthur on what this phrase means. Being denotes the person's essential nature, essence, that which is inalienably, unchangeably true about him. That he possesses this nature as God. That's his being. That's who he is. This refers to his innate, unchangeable, unalterable essence. His nature is that of God. Jesus is God. This is reminding us of what is clear throughout Scripture. But some have used this verse to dispute the deity of Christ. So let's read a few other passages that just display the the clarity of the teaching in the Bible that Jesus is God. Colossians 1. Just listen as I read. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. The church. He is the beginning. For in him was all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. In John 8, the Jews came to Jesus and said, You are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then finally in Hebrews, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus is God. So, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. This phrase is somewhat difficult to translate as it can have different connotations. The phrase, a thing to be grasped here, can mean either to seize or to rob, 
or it can mean to clutch to, to hold on to, to treasure, to hold on to no matter what. So which is correct interpretation. Let's think about Lucifer. Lucifer was a heavenly being who was not God. He was not equal with God. He did not share God's nature and his ultimate glory. But he wanted it. He tried to seize it. He tried to usurp it. And was cast out of heaven to become Satan. But Christ is God. Let's look at the scripture to see why this this should be interpreted as Christ did not count equality with God as something to be clung to no matter what. First indication that this is the correct interpretation comes from the scripture we just read. Those scriptures clearly present Christ as very God of very God. Jesus does have equality with God. Therefore, it can't be something that he didn't want to rob or to seize. He had it. I don't look out the window and at my car and say, I don't count that worthy to be stolen, so I already have it. Christ Jesus had equality with the Father. The next indication comes in the next phrase, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. If Christ were not God and not co-eternal with the Father before the Incarnation, he would have not had to empty himself prior to the Incarnation. But Jesus was God and enjoyed equality with God. Because he was infinitely glorious, he voluntarily gave up his equality with God for a time. So Jesus, co-eternal with the Father, did not count equality with God as something he was unwilling to relinquish for a time. He was willing to relinquish it for a time. And he did. Look at the next phrase. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So what did Christ empty himself of? We have to be careful here because Jesus Christ was God. He was the God-man. Therefore, he did not empty himself of his deity. So what did he empty himself of? There are a few potentially accurate, at least in part, answers to that question. But I want us to look specifically at one that is mentioned in the Scriptures. Namely, the manifest presence of His glory. Listen to John 17, verse 4. Jesus, while He was on earth, prays to God the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is God the Son, and prior to His incarnation, His glory was on full display in the heavens. His glory was veiled while He walked on earth. You remember, don't you, there was the one time that Jesus pulled back the veil a little bit just for a moment for His inner circle. When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with his inner circle, he pulled back the veil just a small bit and gave his inner circle a tiny glimpse of the display of his glory. But while on earth, Christ laid aside his infinite glory and his beauty. Listen to Isaiah 53 talking about Jesus on earth. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Christ emptied himself by laying aside the manifest display of his glory. He emptied himself by giving up his equality with God for a time to walk the earth. Now let's look at what Christ lay aside his glory to do. Back at the text. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Jesus lay aside his glory so that he could take on human flesh. Let's look briefly at these words. Form of a servant, likeness of men, found in human form. So three different Greek words. Form of a servant. The form here is the same word used in verse 6 when you said Jesus being in the form of God, which we saw to mean as the very essence of God. Jesus is very God of very God. So we see here with this word form that Jesus becomes very man of very man. I think the other words here, likeness and appearance, teach us two things. One, that Jesus appeared as a human. When he was a baby, he appeared just like a normal human baby. Like he didn't have a glowing halo like he does in the medieval paintings. And that line from the popular Christmas song is, is probably inaccurate. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. The line is probably inaccurate. Jesus was a human baby. My wife is finishing up her master's in nursing, and she's delivered a lot of babies. She'll tell you if a baby is born and there's no heavy breathing evidenced by crying, like something is wrong. That baby doesn't start breathing vigorously and crying. That baby's probably going to end up in the ICU. Human babies cry. Crying is not sinful for a human baby. And kids, I said baby. If you're 15 years old and you cry when your mom tells you to go clean your room, that's probably sinful. But crying for a human baby is not sinful. Jesus cried. He felt pain. He felt hunger. These words, however, also remind us that though his appearance was that of a man, indeed he was a man, he was not merely a man. He was the God-man. He never sinned. He was a man, but he was distinct from sinful man. So there is a distinction. There was a distinction between he and every other human being. He never sinned. He is God. He is man. He is the God-man. This is the reality of the Incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The coming of the God-man. Moving on, let's see what the God-man came to do. Look back at the text with me. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to be humbly obedient to the Father's will. Jesus came to die on the cross. This is the gospel. 
that Jesus came as the God-man, that He lived a sinless life that no other human could. Therefore, He was the only man who did not deserve to die, the only man who did not deserve the wrath of God. But He took on the wrath of God and died a cursed death in the most degrading and painful form of execution. He did this so that He might redeem a people for Himself, so that whoever believes on the work of Jesus on the cross might be saved from the wrath of God. This is the Gospel. This is what Jesus came to do. You should have listened to Augustine on the Incarnation. The Maker of Man became man, that He, the Ruler of the stars, might need to be nourished, that He, the Bread, might be hungry, that He, the Fountain, might thirst, that he the light might sleep, that he the way might be wearied by the journey, that he the truth might be accused by false witnesses, that he the judge of the living and the dead might be brought to trial by a corrupt moral judge, that he justice itself might be condemned by the unjust, that he discipline itself might be scourged with whips, that he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross, that he, courage personified, might be weakened, that he, security, might be wounded, that he, the very life itself, might die. He who submitted to such great evils for our sake had done no evil although we, who are the recipients of so much good at His hands, have done nothing but evil. That's the reality of the Incarnation. It's what the world misses at Christmas. This is what we should be celebrating at Christmas. It's the reality of the Incarnation. Secondly, we want to look at the reason for the Incarnation. Why did Christ come? Now, there are a variety of true but subservient purposes in Christ's coming. We just saw that one of the reasons was to die substitutionary death so that He might provide justification to all who believe. So the question we really want to answer is, what is the ultimate goal of the Incarnation? What is the ultimate purpose of God in sending the God-man? To get to that ultimate purpose, we're first going to see a few more subservient purposes in this passage. Back of the text. Therefore God has highly exalted Him, Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. The word therefore here is important. Therefore indicates the reason that God did what He did. Namely, Christ's incarnation. His voluntarily giving up His equality with God, His laying aside of His glory, His humble obedience to the Father's will, and His death on the cross. All this humble obedience is encapsulated in the word, therefore. Therefore, what happened after Jesus lay aside His glory and came as the God-man and died absorbing the wrath of God, He was exalted. His glory was once again unveiled and His glory was magnified. 
And for many years, I assumed that this passage was teaching that, that the name that Jesus was given that was above every name was the name Jesus. This is not the case, however. Jesus is synonymous with the Old Testament name Joshua, and it was a common name. Now, this is, now to be sure, the name of Jesus is precious to the believer, but Jesus is not the name that Paul's referring to here in this passage. The name that Jesus is given by God the Father that is above every name is the name Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. This is the name that is above every name. Now, Jesus was equal to God in eternity past. He was God. But now, Jesus as the God-man is exalted by God the Father as Lord. The Redeemer has come and has won the prize for which He came. He has bought redemption by the blood of His cross. And now Jesus, as the God-man, is exalted as Lord. The name that is above every name. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Another purpose for the Incarnation is that every knee should bow and every tongue confess. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Believer, unbeliever, angel, demon, living, dead, no exceptions. All will bow. All will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now for believers, this will be a wonderful This will be a worshipful bowing filled with awesome wonder and a joyful confession. For unbelievers, this will be a bow in awful terror and a confession with bitter remorse. But all will bow. All will confess. And then finally, here in the last phrase of this passage, we see the ultimate purpose of the incarnation. Read verses once again. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. The ultimate purpose of the incarnation is the glory of God. This is also the ultimate goal of Jesus in the incarnation. The salvation of sinners was not the ultimate goal of Jesus in the Incarnation. It was the glory of God. Listen to G. Campbell Morgan on this concept. The deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God. And then the saving of men, because that is for the glory of God. This passage is one of the many that makes abundantly clear the God-centeredness of God. God's passion for His own glory. This is, these are the verses that give us a God-centered worldview. Now let's look at, back at the, at the text so that we can see it clearly. Okay, I'll Read it again. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what's going on here in these verses? 
God is the cause of all of this. And is for a purpose. God has highly exalted him. God did it. God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God did this. Why? So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But again, the last phrase is showing this, that these subservient purposes are serving a greater universal purpose. And that is the glory of God. God exists for the glory of God. It's what many Christians miss about the Incarnation. They see their salvation as the ultimate purpose of God in the Incarnation. And to be sure, this is a purpose of God in the Incarnation. As I said earlier, for God so loved the world is still true. God loves and delights in saving sinners like you and I. But God's ultimate purpose is His own glory. And that's good news. God exists for the glory of God because if He does not, then He ceases to be God. You see, if God's ultimate purpose is to save sinners, then God becomes dependent on something, namely the salvation of the sinner. The ultimate purpose for the incarnation is the glory of God. Let's again see this in Scripture. Listen to John 17, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus is praying to the Father, asking the Father to glorify the Son so that the Son might glorify the Father. Once again, we see God as the actor Jesus prays to God that He would glorify the Son through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension back into heaven so that ultimately the Father would be glorified. So God has orchestrated all this, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the bestowing on Jesus of the name Lord. God did all this for His own glory. And this is the focal point of redemptive history, right? But we see this throughout the Bible. We see God's pursuit of His own glory. What's the first thing Jesus prays when teaching His disciples to pray? Father, hallowed be Your name. Glorify Your name. Magnify Your name. Israel brought, excuse me, God brought Israel safe from the hands of the Egyptians for His name's sake. Psalm 106 says, Our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea, yet He saved them for His name's sake, that He might make known His power. God did not destroy Israel in exile for His name's sake. It's in Isaiah 48. God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God does everything for His own glory. God exists for the glory of God. Now, is this a problem? We have a term for human beings like this, right? Narcissist. Narcissist is someone who is completely consumed with themselves. Now, we're all selfish. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who only does things for themselves, who in a very literal way, they believe that the world should completely revolve around them, that everyone should make much of them. 
And that's not good, right? Like someone who's truly a narcissist has a mental disease. This is how the Mayo Clinic defines narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder. It's one of several different personality disorders, but narcissistic personality disorder is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others. People with narcissistic personality disorder may be generally unhappy and disappointed when they're not given the special favors or admiration they believe they deserve. Narcissistic personality disorder. And now if you ask Lauren, she'd probably tell you I've been in and out of remission most of my life. But be that as it may, to unbelievers, God's pursuit of his own glory looks like narcissism. So is God's commitment to his own glory narcissism? And if not, why? Even C.S. Lewis recorded that one of the great obstacles in him coming to the God of the Bible was that when he read the Psalms, the constant demand from God to praise him seemed to him to picture God as craving for our worship like a vain woman wants compliments. So does this criticism hold water? Well, narcissistic people crave attention because they need to be made much of to feed their inflated and fragile egos They need the exaltation of others. God doesn't. God doesn't need to be glorified. Look back at the text. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. What does that mean? It does not make Him glorious. God is already the most glorious reality in the universe. Nothing can make Him more glorious. Our confession and worship of God does not make Him glorious. What does it do though? It shows the glory of God. It displays the glory of God. It reveals the glory of God. So this confessing and bowing down that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father is not making Him glorious. It is showing His glory. When something is done to the glory of God, it is not increasing His glory. It is displaying and magnifying His glory. So Jesus does, excuse me, God doesn't need to send Jesus to the world to build a church to worship Him in order to be glorious. He is already ultimately glorious. So why does he send Jesus to redeem a people and then repeatedly demand that they worship and glorify him? I think that chapter 3 in Philippians gives us an answer to this question. Chapter 3, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. Christ is more valuable than anything in the universe. And in Christ, we get everything the Father is and everything the Father has to give. So when God glorifies Himself, when God calls us into worship of His glory, He is giving us the most glorious reality in the universe. He is the only thing that can satisfy the human soul 
and his passion for his glory is what sent Jesus to be made man, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to send into heaven. Listen to this quotation about God's glorification of himself in Philippians 2. God, in seeking his own glory to the glory of God the Father, is preserving and exalting for us what is infinitely satisfying. And then quote Psalm 1611, In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God in glorifying Himself is upholding and preserving the most satisfying reality in the universe, namely fellowship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Narcissistic people are miserable, and the people they try to exploit for their own glory are miserable. God is not a narcissist. God glorifies himself because he is the only reality worthy of glorification. And the glorification of him through us laying down our lives to serve and worship him is the only way that we can be eternally satisfied. So God's pursuit of his own glory is good news because magnifying glorious reality is when we feel most alive. When we see and magnify glorious realities, we are filled with awe and wonder. One example from nature and then one from the Bible. When do we as humans feel most overwhelmed with wonder and delight? Is it when we are magnified? Now maybe for a truly narcissistic person this is the case, but for most of us, the times that we feel truly awe and wonder is when we behold something glorious. When we look at the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or Yosemite or even just the breadth and power of one of the oceans, we're filled with awesome wonder. We magnify the reality and it feels good to magnify the reality. This is why millions of people go to natural wonders every year. I'm sure you can see where I'm going. God is the most glorious reality in the universe. And magnifying that glory is where we can find the greatest joy. An example from Scripture. This is a Christmas text or a pre-Christmas text. Mary, after she is told that she will give birth to the Messiah, sings this song of worship to God. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary says that magnifying the glory of God leads to rejoicing and joy in God. Listen to Augustine again. Because the face of God is so lovely or glorious, so beautiful, once you have seen it, nothing else can give you pleasure. It will give insatiable satisfaction of which we will never tire we shall always be hungry, and we shall always have our fill. Now, we're not there. At least I'm not. But this is the point, that God is passionate about His own glory because it is the only thing that will bring us insatiable satisfaction. So the ultimate reason for the incarnation, for Christmas, is the glory of God. So what should our response be? First, I would say, thank God for the reality of the incarnation. 
as we move closer to Christmas, take time alone or with your family to meditate on the realities of the Incarnation. That Jesus, who was God, co-eternal with the Father, who was infinitely glorious, that this Jesus emptied himself, that he lay aside and concealed his glory, that he took on human flesh, that he became a man so that he might die for sinful man. Meditate on these realities and let them fill your heart with gratefulness. Thank God for the reality of the Incarnation. Second application, glorify, magnify God this Christmas season. We've already seen in this passage that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We saw earlier that some will do it in awful terror and some will do it in awesome worship. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, this is the invitation. Come to Jesus and bow the knee in submission. Confess with glad-hearted assurance that Jesus is Lord. Repent of your sins. Come to Jesus for salvation. Put your faith in the saving work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is calling you this morning. For believers here, the application is to glorify God with your life by having the mind of Christ. By humbly and obediently pursuing His glory above everything. By laying down your self-centered worldview and adopting a God-centered worldview. By saying with God, I count all things as rubbish that I might gain Christ. Magnify the glory of God. Now this might sound strange a little bit. Magnify the glory of God. You want us to try to make the glory of God look bigger? Well, it can be strange. So there's two ways we can magnify the glory of God. And this is not original, but I think it bears repeating. The two ways that we can magnify the glory of God, one is heresy and the other is worship. We can magnify like a microscope or we can magnify like a telescope. What does a microscope do? It makes things that are tiny, very, very small, appear to be much larger than they really are. That's heresy. We try to talk about God as if to make Him seem more glorious than He really is. That's heresy. What does a telescope do? A telescope makes something that is incomprehensibly big but so far away that it looks small, it makes that appear more like it actually is. That's what magnifying God should look like for us. To the world, God does not appear glorious. That doesn't make God any less glorious. That just means they can't see His glory. When we live lives of worship characterized by selfless obedience in service to God and serving those around us, we magnify the glory of God to those around us. We make God's glory look more like it actually is. <laughs> the incarnation, humble obedience, and exaltation of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. If we, by the power of Christ, live our lives in humble obedience, we will magnify the glory of God. And one day we will be glorified to the glory of God. Jesus became a man, the God-man. This is the reality of the Incarnation. 
the ultimate reason for the incarnation is the glory of God. The infinite glory of God is the reason that we can have joy in magnifying His glory. Let's thank God for the realities of the incarnation and magnify the glory of God during this Christmas season.